You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, what can the US do to protect the eastern flank of NATO? Article 5 is a sacred commitment the United States has made. We will defend literally every inch of NATO. We'll assess President Biden's meeting with the so-called Bucharest 9 and ask if his reassurance is enough. Also ahead, Austrian neutrality is in the spotlight again. The fact is we are only neutral in military terms. On every other issue, Austria is in full solidarity with the European Union and there can be no doubt about it. We'll hear from the country's Minister for Foreign Affairs as Austria faces pressure to get tougher on Russia. Plus we'll look at the newspapers and the actor Vincent Cassel will talk to Monocle24 about his new series, Liaison. I didn't want it to be like the stereotype spy thing where, you know, they fight forever. And I did all my stunts to have this feeling of violence and effectiveness. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. For years, long before the war in Ukraine began, the easternmost members of NATO warned their Western partners about the real threat posed by Russia. Since Moscow's invasion, they have won praise, not to mention a few apologies from allies who failed to listen to their previous warnings. Well, the sentiment was expressed by Ingrida Simonite, the Prime Minister of Lithuania, when she spoke to the Foreign Desk team at the Munich Security Conference. Take a listen. Well, I hear a lot of credit for the fact that we've been warning our friends and partners and that this was not our trauma speaking, but that was a rationality behind this because we also heard those, you know, this is your trauma speaking. Sometimes your historical past might weigh on you in quite a productive way, but this also brought us ability to see what maybe other countries were not seeing properly because they were betting on this idea that you can trade Russia into civilization. The bad thing was that we still let Putin do whatever he wants inside the country. But all people were thinking, oh, as long as we can deal with him like on a, on a high level, then it doesn't matter what happens inside. But that mattered a lot because it built the circumstances for Russia to become what it is now. It's good that we stopped thinking that Putin is a politician in a Western sense of view, an accountable one. He's not accountable. That was the Prime Minister of Lithuania, Ingrida Simoneta, talking to the Foreign Desk team at the Munich Security Conference. Well, listening to that was Paul Rogers, Open Democracy's international security expert, and Marian Mesmer, who's a senior research fellow in international security at Chatham House. Very good morning to you both. Good morning. Um, Marion, if I can begin with you, um, the issue, the idea that Ingrida in- Simoneta was talking about a moment ago, the idea of people ultimately giving them credit. It it took an invasion for people to listen. How did people get it so wrong with Russia? That's a very good question. I mean, I think how we got where we are with Russia now actually took a really long time. And there was also a good decade at the end of the Cold War where a different course looked very possible. 
So, um, and you could see throughout different NATO countries that your geography really depended on how you saw Russia. So a country like Spain, for example, would have had a very different perspective than Poland or Lithuania, indeed. Um, so I'd say it's, it's, it's a mix of people wanting to hope for a better future, and there also actually being indications for that, um, and also just having a slightly different perspective on things and therefore maybe not noticing the same things or not worrying to the same extent about the same uh, factors that you might see if you're a little further up close. And Paul, all this context feeds into the, a meeting held yesterday in Warsaw where the US President Joe Biden met leaders from the so-called Bucharest Nine, which the, the countries on NATO's eastern flank. Um, just to explain to us, who are the Bucharest Nine, if you wouldn't mind? Well, in terms of the countries, is the Czech Republic, Slovakia, uh, the Baltic Three, the three Baltic Straits, uh, uh, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, and then Poland, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, and that makes the nine. It actually started in, in uh, 2015. The leading lights at the start were President Johannes of Romania and President Duda of Poland. And it's been fairly low profile, although as tensions rose, because this came out after the uh, Russian involvement in, um, in Crimea, uh, but it's been low profile until fairly recently. Then it came much more to the fore uh, last year for obvious reasons. And the interesting thing here is that you had actually Biden attending this meeting. Um, it's part of a preparation. There's a key B9 meetings, it's called, in July, I think 11th and 12th of July. And then there's a NATO meeting later on in the year. So essentially, it, it, it's coming from the perceived need uh, to actually play much tougher with Russia. And that, of course, as was just said, has come to the fore very much uh, with the experience of the last year or so. Um, Marion, are they joined together simply because of the Russian threat at the moment? No, I wouldn't say so, because, um, I mean, two of the mem members that Paul listed just there, Bulgaria and Hungary, actually have a slightly different perspective when it comes to Russia to the rest. Um, both Hungary and Bulgaria are much closer to the Russian government and therefore have been much more skeptical when it comes to providing aid uh, for Ukraine. So I think um, the, the one thing that they do all have in common is that they are all on NATO's eastern border. But I think this meeting, as much as it is about solidarity and collaboration, um, will possibly also have been about um, being able to work much more directly with Hungary and Bulgaria to uh, align them much more with with the rest of the uh, B9. Paul, tell us a little bit more about what needs to be done to bring Hungary and Bulgaria into the fold. We have Viktor Orban in Hungary, in Hungary against any kind of military aid being given to Ukraine. And we have Bulgaria taking a very hard anti-war posi position. What needs to be done to try to, to, to sort of consolidate an, a united approach? Well, Bulgaria is important. I think uh, the president actually seems to have taken an even tougher anti-war line in recent months. Uh, Oban is the key, and he wasn't even attending the, the G9 meeting uh, yesterday. Uh, sorry, sorry, the B9 meeting yesterday, uh, even though you had the American president there. Uh, the president of Hungary did go, so that was quite senior. But the very fact that Orban was away showed there's quite a long way to go. One suspects that part of the reason for uh, Biden going there was to show that the United States is fully behind this and indirectly put a pressure on uh, Orban. And it's going to be a question whether that works. But as I said, uh, as Marion was indicating, we've got some time to play with this. And I think behind the scenes is going to be intensive di diplomacy. Uh, much of this is being led among the B9 by Poland, 
That is rapidly increasing its defense spending. It's going up to nearly 3%. And it's buying a lot of American equipment. So the link there is very close. One's guess, and it's, it really is a guess at this stage, is that to some extent, some degree of compromise will be reached simply because of the pressure that the Americans can put on countries like Hungary. But Hungary, landlocked, of course, is heavily dependent on Russian oil. And that, in a sense, adds to the political dimension that Orban is bringing to this in terms of his attitude to Putin and to Russia as a whole. Marion, how effective do you think Biden's rallying cry will be when it comes to Ukraine? Because the B9 have talked about the threat from Russia for a long time. People didn't listen. Um, what does it? What difference can Biden make? I, th- I think the, the war has really changed things for a lot of countries. Um, may- maybe not necessarily for Hungary and Bulgaria in the same way, but uh, if you look at NATO unity overall, it is much greater now than it might have been just a little over a year ago. And um, and I think that is going to stay that way uh, for a while longer. It will take work to make sure that uh, public opinion remains like that, especially in light of high inflation and uh, some of the other economic costs that citizens in Europe can already feel due to the war. But um, just the fact that we've got a brutal war of invasion going on right on our doorstep, I think, has made a difference for a lot of NATO member states. Um, when it comes to Hungary and Bulgaria, um, I mean, I think Paul is right that eventually that it will be possible to reach a compromise, but it is difficult because of the domestic politics in, in both of those countries. And um, Hungary, of course, is also one of the um, two countries, one of the two NATO members who are still holding out um, on Finnish and Swedish accession to NATO. So I think that's going to be another big talking point, potentially a big bargaining chip when it comes to Hungary. Paul, let's move on to uh, events that have taken place in the last 24 hours at the UN. There was a a General Assembly meeting. Um, Ukraine and Russia lobbying countries at the UN um, for backing. It's the, the, the general. Just tell us a little bit about what happened at a meeting, which, to coincide with the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, put everybody's allegiances in very sharp focus. It is indeed, and I think one's got to put this in context. After the Russian occupation or invasion of Ukraine a year ago, uh, there were UN meetings, obviously the Security Council and key General Assembly, and the mood then was very sort of opposed to Russia, very large numbers of countries, relatively few countries sort of uh, even when neutral on this, uh, abstained rather. So you actually had a very strong feeling that, you know, the world was behind the West. That may still be true, but far less. Uh, There was uh, a report put out a couple of days ago by the European um, Council on Foreign Relations, a result of a long study done a polling in 15 countries. And that showed that some of the countries we sometimes call the Global South don't hold the same views. In other words, uh, there's almost a degree of a plague on both your houses. Now, that wasn't reflected in that original vote, but even then, there are indications that public opinion across the Global South was more ambivalent, uh, partly because some said the colonial experience dating back decades, uh, many more the, the effect of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which to an extent were very much NATO wars. So when you put that together, there was real concern behind the scenes, if not in public. So I know it's a long preamble, but the point is a lot will depend on the actual voting that comes out when this resolution is put. If you found that at least at the governmental level, uh, even more countries are going to condemn uh, Russia, 
then that will be regarded as very good news in Washington. But if that isn't the case, there'll be more concern about the way in which the global picture is rather different from the Western perception. Uh, that, I think, will be the real key thing to watch at this General Assembly. It is indeed something, that Marion, that, that um, the US Vice President Kamala Harris is, is lobbying to try to get some energy behind the global south to get them to be more invested in the war in Ukraine. But there is this dreadful problem, isn't there? Not only is it geographically somewhere else where it is not necessarily that relevant every single day, but also there are huge economic issues here which require countries to be fed uh, and countries to, to trade. And sometimes, often, that overrides principle. Um, I mean, that, that's certainly one point, but I would also say that, um, you know, what, one of the arguments that we've heard from different Global South countries on this is that they don't feel that Europe necessarily pays the same attention if there is um, a catastrophe happening in their region. And so for them, it's it's a little bit of, of a um, perhaps a situation in reverse where, you know, there's something big happening in Europe and it's on their horizon, they may think about it, it may impact them um, in different ways, perhaps because of grain prices or because of politics. Um, but at the end of the day, it's far away from them. And um, and their argument essentially is that that's how Europe has been acting on some of these issues for the last several years. And as a result, Paul, it, it sort of makes the pleas from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, um, sort of fall a little bit short, doesn't he? I mean, he said something along the lines of all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. That was urging people to take a stance to try to bring about some peace. But how interested are other countries in it? Rather less so. It depends very much. It would be very interesting, I think, to see how the new president, well, the returning president of Brazil, Axe Lula, uh, he may well push very strongly, uh, together with some other states across the Global South, to get some kind of uh, negotiations, however tentative going, that he may play a fairly key role, because, of course, Bolsonaro was essentially far more uh, prepared to look at the position from a Western perspective. Uh, more generally, I think it's going to depend very much on what actually happens. Absolutely, Guterres, the Secretary-General, has been very strong on this. But the trouble here always is that if you get people or commentators or political leaders in the global south, um, it's a sort of whataboutism. And they point to, you know, the 20-year failed war in Afghanistan, which they can see to some extent as a NATO war. Uh, and they just have a, a very different perspective. And this, I think, is coming as quite of a shock to many Western governments who just assumed that the world would sort of take a very similar view. They didn't expect it from China, obviously. They didn't really expect it from India. But from many other countries across Latin America and Africa, essentially, I think the, the Western leaders have got it rather badly wrong about how this war was seen. And they will do their best to try and change this round. But as I say, I think the voting of the UN may give a very, very good indication of where they actually stand at present. Paul Rogers and Marion Mesmer, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're with Monocle 24. 
Now, while the world prepares to mark tomorrow's anniversary of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, Austria has come under fire for allowing sanctioned Russian officials to travel to Vienna for a meeting of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe on Friday. Earlier at the Munich Security Conference, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with Alexander Schallenberg, Austria's Minister for Foreign Affairs, who formerly served as Chancellor of Austria in 2021. Andrew began by asking Herr Schallenberg why Austria is allowing sanctioned Russian lawmakers to enter their country. The thing is that we are obliged by international law. We have a seat agreement with the OSCE and Vienna is the seat of many, nearly 40 international organisations. And we are obliged by this agreement, by this international treaty, to let every delegation into Austria to participate in meetings. And so it's not up to us to take this decision. And I believe it's very important that we are not sending a signal that we choose and pick the international law we apply. We are defending now, currently, a rules-based international system. And we have to apply international rules even if they don't suit us. Do you think, though, that there is perhaps also some value in still having any avenue of communication to Russia? Well, in general terms, absolutely. And I believe the OSCE has a key role to play. OSCE was never an organization of like-minded countries. I mean, if you look at the history of this organization, it was born in the, at the height of the Cold War with the Helsinki process, then the CSSC and OSCC. And it is a club an organization where everybody is on board, from Vladivostok to uh, Vancouver, we said in the past. And it has never been easy to work in the OSCE. Mm. But I believe it's important, and we continue to need, and we will need in the future even more so, uh, platforms for dialogue, although we have enormous differences, and these differences have grown with Russia. Have you also been getting much pressure, not just here but elsewhere as well, about Austria's ongoing position of restricting itself to humanitarian or or non-lethal aid for Ukraine? I mean, I know 570 million euros in aid or whatever it is Austria is now up to is not nothing, but isn't it kind of a convenient hypocrisy? Because if you're sending even non-lethal aid to a country at war, that is ultimately assisting it in its war effort, isn't it? No, not at all, actually. And I, I have to point out that in comparison to our gross national product, Austria is number one as far as humanitarian aid is concerned, if we put public and private humanitarian aid together. So this is number one. And I've been yesterday, for instance, I had dinner and I was sitting next to the, uh, my colleague from Ukraine, Mitro Kuleba, who's a friend of mine. And all our partners know about our restrictions. It's nothing new. Austria has been a neutral country since 1955. And we simply cannot deliver lethal equipment and weapons in a war zone. But the fact is, we are only neutral in military terms. On every other issue, Austria is in full solidarity with the European Union, with the West, with the free world on this issue, and there can be no doubt about it. Why? Because what Russia has been doing actually is uh, kicking the UN Charter, the very principles we have established after the Second World War. And for us Austrians, international law, the principle of Pacta sunt Savanda, rules-based international system, is our protective cloak. This is what's keeping us safe. So we can't be bystanders and neutral when one country, and especially a permanent member of the, of the Security Council of the United Nations, decide you know, to kick all of that out. But there's one limit, you're right, there's one limitation. We cannot deliver little equipment to Ukraine, but our Ukrainian partners know it, and they have always, from day one on, respected this limitation of ours. Do you think that military neutrality is an absolutely eternal, non-negotiable for Austria, though? I mean, if, if not these circumstances, can you imagine the circumstances in which it might be reconsidered? 
Currently, no. I mean, it has an enormous support in the Austrian population. It's part of, you know, the self-appreciation, so to say, of the Austrian people and has become part of our international politics. And so the support is about 80% of the Austrian population. So I don't see now a situation where we reconsider it. And I even think that it might have a value added someday in the future again. And don't forget one thing. We are the seed of the UN. We are the seed of the OSCE. So and OPEC and many other organizations which are of international importance. And this is something where a certain degree of neutrality is, is worthwhile and helpful also. So it is very anchored in the Austrian consciousness, you might say, the neutrality. And I believe it can, in the more difficult world, and we will see a world with multipolar centers, uh, neutrality can have a added value. And again, we have said very clearly before joining the European Union that we will act in solidarity and cooperate in the common foreign and security policy. You won't see one decision. It might be on the European peace facility, on sanctions, on anything, where Austria has said no or had, you know, uh, second thoughts. We are in full solidarity with the policies of the European Union and all our partners know that. You did say yourself, though, when speaking at Sciences Po in Paris in January, that it was important to maintain a sense of proportion about what was going on with Russia and Ukraine. What did you mean by that? Well, I was actually, I believe that three things we need most in the next couple of months is strategic patience, our unity, that's the most important asset we had in the last uh, 12 months and we have to keep our unity and sense of proportion. What I mean is that if we decide on sanctions, we have to avoid a kind of boomerang effect that they fall on us more strongly than hit Russia. Secondly, we had a debate once where some people suggested to put a visa ban on each and every Russian. And I was against it because I say we have always to be able to make the difference between Putin and his henchmen and his regime and the Russians. And we have to be able to continue to make this difference. We have never did anything comparable with Iranians or North Koreans. So with all the emotionality, with all this kind of emotions we have in Europe, we still have to keep a sense of proportion. Because one thing is for sure, and I like to cite Egon Bahr, the architect of German Ostpolitik, they said, US is irreplaceable, but Russia is unmovable. <laughs> but isn't this idea that, that Russia is deep down just another European country kind of what has led Europe into what happened a year ago? Is this not a lie Europe has been telling itself now for 30 years that it'll all be okay eventually, Russia's really just like us? Well, you're right to the fact that on the 24th of February we have found out the hard way that we were maybe naive, foolish mm. to a certain degree, that we thought that... Francis Fukuyama might still be right, <laughs> and our model of life, our democratic, open societies, and will sort of kind of with drawbacks, but will expand and convince others to join our clubs, so to say. And we have found out that there are countries which consider our very existence, the model of life we are pursuing, as an act of aggression to a certain degree. But Russia was never only European, never in its history. But And it always has been a challenge for itself, especially, but also for partners. I believe the architecture of the security architecture in Europe will look very differently in the future. Sometimes I compare the situation we're living in with an earthquake and the soil is still trembling. We don't know where the tectonic plates will rest at the end, but we know that the Sant'Andrea fault will be larger and bigger. 
and that I hope at least that one or the other bridge will still be standing because we might need them. That was Austria's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Alexander Schallenberg, speaking to Andrew Muller at the Munich Security Conference. Still to come on today's Globalist, we'll hear from the actor Vincent Cassel about setting the right tone for his latest series, Liaison. I didn't want it to be like the stereotype spy thing where, you know, they fight forever. And I did all my stunts to have this feeling of violence and effectiveness. That's all coming up on Monocle 24. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now, so far on today's Globalist, we've been looking at how the world is reacting to the conflict in Ukraine ahead of the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion tomorrow. Or perhaps one of the most pressing questions will be how to rebuild Ukraine as civilians try to re-establish their lives eventually. So what kind of support does Ukraine need and how much will it all cost? In part four of our Ukraine series, Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov sat down with the chief economist Beata Yavorchik from the European Bank for Reconstruction and development. They talked about these questions and much more. Petri began by asking about the key challenges that Ukraine faces as it sets out to rebuild its war-ravaged infrastructure and economy. There are three preconditions or three necessary ingredients for a successful reconstruction of Ukraine. The first one is stable peace, stable resolution to the conflict. The second one is institutional improvement in Ukraine. And the third one is money. The third one is the easiest to resolve because the international community stands ready to support Ukraine. I'm also optimistic about the second ingredient, institutions, because the prospect of EU accession provides an opportunity for Ukraine to get on this reform path and improve the quality of its governance. So the most challenging ingredient is finding a stable solution to the conflict. If we look at the work that the banquet that you represent does, give us a picture of how you support Ukrainian businesses and the authorities and help the business community in the country to thrive. At the moment, we are focusing on supporting Ukraine here and now on helping the country make it through the winter. We help to keep lights on, to keep heating on, to keep trains running. We support international trade transactions, so imports of vital parts and components, pharmaceuticals. We also provide emergency liquidity to firms. And our loan Energon, the state energy company, finances emergency repairs that are absolutely necessary for the functioning of the country. 
And in this way, we are directly contributing to the reconstruction effort. Because if we help to make conditions as bearable as possible for the Ukrainian population, we are going to avoid another wave of refugees. And that's going to position Ukraine better for reconstruction because the loss of human capital will be smaller because skills and people will be in the country when the time for reconstruction comes. What are the key post-war priorities for Ukraine in order to attract foreign investment and to help generate economic growth? Ukraine has a lot of going for it. It's a large country on the European doorstep. It has educated workforce. It is going to be inevitably a very attractive market for foreign direct investment. What it's lacking is institutions. The prospect of EU accession offers an opportunity for the country to embark on an ambitious reform path. Typically, it's very difficult for elected politicians to focus on long-term goal simply because their terms are short. What the EU accession offers is the need to answer only one question. Do you want to become part of the EU? And once the society makes that decision, the path is set because what needs to be done is prescribed by the EU. So it cuts out all these discussions. It cuts out the possibility of populist interests derailing the reform process. And we have seen how well the accession worked in the context of the Eastern European member states. And because now millions of Ukrainians have seen firsthand how much better countries like Poland function, how they have achieved prosperity over the last 30 years, they've seen the proof that the process works. Do you have some kind of an estimate as to how much funds Ukraine will need to rebuild? The World Bank did a detailed calculation last summer, and according to their estimate, Ukraine needed $350 billion dollars last summer. Now, since then, we've seen more destruction. It's a huge figure. And I think it is very clear that international community, multilateral development banks, bilateral aid is not going to be enough. We are going to need private sector participation. And here, the EBRD can play an important role in mobilizing private investment in Ukraine. We have been active in Ukraine for three decades. We have been the largest institutional investor there. We've had offices in several places with more than 100 team members on the ground. So we stand ready to do it. And the way we can do it is by investing jointly with private investors from Western countries. Our participation gives them comfort We do very strict due diligence. We serve as a seal of approval, as a signal that a country is open for business. When you look at Ukraine um, and the country's economy, what have you identified as the key growth sectors with most potential in the country? Ukraine has potential in several areas. It is a country with a lot of fertile land, 
It is a breadbasket of Europe. So certainly uh, agriculture and agro-processing are an obvious area. The second area is manufacturing. We are witnessing now the process of reshaping of global value chains as firms are interested in diversifying their supply base. And this process has only started now. And it's going to take a while. European firms will be looking for suppliers in the European neighborhood. So Ukraine can have the potential to become a manufacturing workshop of Europe. That was a chief economist, Beata Javocic, from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. She's talking to Monocle's Patry Burtsov. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monocle 24. In a moment, we'll be finding out why we're talking about identity cards once again in Britain. But first, a quick summary of today's other news headlines. Palestinian health officials are claiming that Israeli troops have killed at least 11 Palestinians and wounded dozens more during a raid in the occupied West Bank. Israel's army said it killed three wanted militants who were near the entrance of the old city of Nablus. The US State Department said it was deeply concerned by the large number of injuries and loss of life in the last 24 hours. Canada's military says it's recently discovered evidence of Chinese surveillance operations in the Arctic. The revelation comes after a suspected Chinese spy balloon floating over American airspace was shot down by the US military. Canada's Foreign Minister Melanie Jolly said that Canada will work closely with the North American Aerospace Defence Command to protect the country's airspace and Canada's sovereignty in the Arctic. And heavy rains have killed nearly 50 people in southeastern Brazil since the flooding started last weekend. Dozens remain missing and cities including São Sebastião and Ubatuba have cancelled their carnival festivities as rescue efforts continue. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, the issue of identity cards and the British is a complicated one. While our counterparts in many European countries at least have for years now carried a little card with them without much ado, the Brits have steadfastly said no on the grounds that it's the state stepping on an individual's toes. But now two British political heavyweights, ex-Prime Minister Sir Tony Blair and the former Conservative leader Lord Haig, have called for what they say is a technical revolution. They want everyone in the UK to get an ID card and for it to be digital. Well, the author David Badanis joins me in the studio now. Very warm welcome back, David. Thank you. Good to have you with us. Um, just explain to us exactly, outline what Lord Haig and, and Sir Tony Blair's plans are. Uh, uh, these are people who um, uh, have had some success in, in government, uh, either uh, running governments or telling people how they should run governments. It's very curious that Tony Blair spent a, a while doing that. Uh, the positive thing is that, as you say, a lot of countries have ID cards, and there's some things it's useful for. And it seems even countries that don't have formal ID cards implicitly do it. In the U.S., they always ask you for your social security number. In the U.K., they'll often ask for a driver's license. So the idea of merging it with, like, Apple Pay and little credit cards that people use all the time kind of makes sense. There are problems, though, and what will it lead to? Who will be in control of this? Well, it's something that is a question that the British seem to ask extremely loudly every time this question comes around. The fact that you've just described more than one country where people are quite happy to, to have an ID card and have for, for years and years and years. And there has always been the splitting off by the United Kingdom. We don't want identity cards. Who knows about us? It's a nanny state. It's Big Brother, etc., etc., etc. What is what is it about the British brain or the British identity which pushes back against the idea of 
an identity card? I think there's a good reason and a bad reason. The good reason is that historically, some pretty terrible states had identity cards. Before the First World War, um, uh, Tsarist Russia had internal passports. And in fact, Tsarist Russia had external passports. And a lot of people in the West said that's primitive and barbaric and stuff. In much of the British Empire, you traveled without a passport. There was a feeling that we're free Englishmen. You know, in France, if you go to a hotel in a different city, you often have to show your identity card and the state has to know who you are. And there's a feeling, come on, we have respect. Because we uh, in Britain have a, a sea borders, didn't have to have a huge standing army and a really dominant uh, uh, king. I mean, so how, there's this notion of independence. But how much are we really thinking back to Tsarist Russia? I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how much that dips into the public consciousness in 2023 in the UK. Yeah, I, I think in, in, in the UK, it's more like a, we're different from the continentals. The, the, the sort of vague resentment that somehow Brussels is bad and oppressive and bureaucratic and England is free and stuff. What's actually going on, I think, a, a less good reason, it's a fantasy. It's a desire for freedom. It's a feeling that you're an independent person who can just kind of be like James Bond traveling in a market somewhere in East Asia, speaking the local language and knowing what's going on. There's a feeling that you can be an independent traveler just hanging out in Britain. I think that's one of the uh, reasons there's the terrible resentment and, and unjust action towards a tra literal travelers uh, in Britain. They Many of them seem to enact a life which many wage slaves would love. Isn't it funny that we are already going back to that argument about how we need to be individuals and not part of a, of a bigger system where it is coming up to three years ago when we all decided that we had to be part of an enormous effort to combat COVID and people were very happy to share their identity, whether they had COVID or not. Everybody decided to move together. Mm -hmm. It, what does that say about the way that a, a country thinks? Yeah, when there's real trust, people will do it. In 1940, there was no uh, National Health Service in Britain. But uh, when the uh, blitz began, uh, the ambulances decided uh, that they would pool their resources. And instead of rich people going to one hospital and poor people going to others, you were, you were taken to the best local hospital. It was actually one of the things that jump-started the NHS later. So under times of stress, people can pull together because you trust the leaders. You feel they won't be going off for their own um, uh, personal uh, uh, volition uh, because you're all in it together. That's why even in developing countries, the national airlines are often a lot better than the national roads. The dictators don't have to drive on the national roads, but they have to take the national airplanes. No, um, Health and identity is one area of expertise. I'm going to exert an astonishing handbrake turn here in Monocle 24 because I know that UFOs are one of your enormous things and extraterrestrial issues. Um, tell us a little bit more, and this is a huge change, about a, a coastal town in Japan and an enormous ball that has um, washed up on a local beach. Just, just describe the ball to us as well, because if this you is, haven't seen it, I do urge you go and have a look at how big this random ball is. This is not a little marble. This is not a, a bowling ball. This is one serious macho ball. So it's a big, huge iron thing. Uh, the uh, military came and they x-rayed it and they found it's hollow. Now, in many of the movies, like with Jodie Foster contact and stuff, this is the beginning of something very serious happening. <laughs> Most likely, it probably came from um, uh, uh, some sort of a fishing fleet or something like that standard in the ocean and sadly the giveaways is there's two human sized handles on it not the size of a human body but the size of a hand uh, bricks in ancient Egypt are about the size of bricks in 2023 Britain because the human hand is a similar size so it's kind of giveaway it wasn't an alien artifact however 
It could be. How disappointed that, are you that, this, that it suggests that this 1.5 metre in diameter ball might not be something that's come from little little green characters? On the other hand, think how curious, how ingenious they would be to put little handles on it to delude us. What if those aren't for little handholds, but for big slimy tentacles, you know, that, that are descended from the mothership? What I love is that around the world, people have these fantasies. It's a desire, again, for freedom and escape, and also a belief that the aliens will be good, which tends to be more of an American belief than a European belief. David Paternus, thank you as ever for joining me in the studio. You're with The Globalist. It's uh, just nudging 7.40 here in London. That means it makes uh, 8.40 if you're listening in Zurich. Let's have a look at today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio, Vincent McAvinney, political journalist and a regular Monocle 24 voice. Hello, Vinny. Good morning. How are you this morning? Yep, fine, thank you. Good, glad to hear it. Um, Let's have a look at the papers. Um, The Independent is covering this story about the the issue of asylum cases here in the UK. Um, The Home Office has had to concede that people are not being put through the system at the speed and with the fairness that they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the fairness is a different issue, but um, Rishi Sunak, the uh, the Prime Minister, has pledged to speed things up. How's it going? Well, the Home Office currently has a backlog of around 150,000 applications outstanding. Uh, and this morning they have announced a plan to process 12,000 of these in a new way. So rather than as normal a face-to-face interview with a, a panel where they assess whether your claim is valid, uh, instead they will do a, uh, I think it's a 10-page uh, questionnaire uh, in English, which they will have to complete uh, and return within 20 days, 20 working days, which has be said as a bit of a feat, you know, in, in terms of if they don't speak English, trying to help get help with the English, but also the British postal system at the moment is in a bit of a mess. You'd be lucky if you get um, anything, get back in 20 exactly, days. Exactly, yes. And if, if you don't get it back, then, you know, you might be showing the exit. And they are targeting particularly countries where there is, I think, a more than around 85% uh, approval rate for people from those countries anyway. So you're talking about Syrians, Afghans, Yemenis, Libyans and Eritreans. Uh, but this could then open the wave for more countries to be added to this. Uh, they say that um if someone is rejected so uh, after filling in this questionnaire then they will potentially be given an appeal in person uh, but we will see whether or not this does speed things up or create more issues in the system it is a political issue as well always is the issue of, of immigration um how politically does the does the government the government being seen as managing this well, I mean, for for over a decade now, since David Cameron uttered words which he sort of, I think, regretted and didn't quite get what he was saying, how prominent they'd be, they've said that they would bring uh, immigration down from a six-figure uh, number uh, into the tens of thousands, not the hundreds of thousands. And, and part of the problem in Britain is that asylum um, has got caught up in the kind of general immigration debate. Of course, immigration has been a big topic since uh, Brexit, where people were promised things like a tough Australian point system, uh, and they have lowered uh, the immigration, but they are in the British government in a bit of a mess 
curious about this because Suella Braverman, for instance, thinks that it's right to cut the number of foreign students coming into the UK from universities. Universities in the UK is one of the major sectors uh, of not just, uh, you know, kind of income for the nation, but also of growth. British universities, you know, are still thought to be world leading. Yes, they've been locked out from some sort of joint EU science projects, but people from around the world want to come to, you know, not just the sort of very top tier universities, but the sort of middle ranking ones are seen globally pretty well. Uh, and there is a lot of confusion around around sort of cutting, you know, off what are economic, you know, boons for the UK because of worries about fudges in in, in statistics. But I think this plan uh, will be, you know, the the, the rates of uh, selecting people from these nations seems like, well, yeah, these are people who are probably likely to, to get through. So let's speed it up. It helps them as well. But if the whole system moves to this, then that could be an issue for the asylum system. Incredibly complicated stuff and highly politicised. Uh, let's move on to... Um well, this should, in theory, be the top story absolutely everywhere. This is what the opposition leader, um, Sir Keir Starmer, intends to tell everybody later on today in Manchester about what the five key missions of Labour are mm. and how they they would shape any manifesto in any future government. Um, not even you, dear Vinny, have put this at the top story. You've put a bit of put, put immigration instead. Tell us what these five missions are, and, and tell us why we think we're it's well, just not yeah, hitting the five, spot. Is I it? I mean, five five things seem to be the new sort of three word slo- slogan. The new yeah, we can't Brexit remember five things. That's I mean, the trouble. Yeah, well, Rishi Sunak launched his sort of five pledges to the British people at the start of this year. Labour at the time dubbed them sticking plasters. I mean, I covered the story at the time. I can only remember one, which was to cut inflation in half in the next sort of 12 months. Which More than I can is, remember. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, But Labour now has its five national missions uh, and they cover five broad themes, the economy, the NHS, crime, the climate crisis and education. And I think this is the first kind of block. I think they're going to focus on economy today. This is going to be the first building block of a manifesto launch which will take place uh, uh, you know, ahead of the election next year, most likely to be in the spring, although it could be back in the autumn. I think a lot of people have criticised Sakir Starmer because they think they know what he's against uh, and they see him out and about talking, uh, but they don't really know his proposals for government. That's the criticism I hear most from, from people about. They don't know what he'd want to do the day he got into office. But Keir Starmer, the thing you have to remember about being in opposition in Britain, you know, some countries, you know, think of America, there's no, when you when you run to be president, you're the leader of the opposition effectively for, you know, a couple of months. When you're a British leader of the opposition, you know, you're elected straight after a general election of your party is lost. You're in the position for five years. It's a long time. And you don't want to sort of blow all your powder uh, in the first year or two. And particularly for Keir Starmer, coming out of the situation where Jeremy Corbyn had, you know, taken the party to a very uh, dark place. There was huge factions internally, there was a breakdown of the structure, there were financial issues, there was uh, disciplinary issues, uh, anti-Semitism, of course, uh, as well. And so he's kind of gone on a pronged approach, which is the first prong. And he sort of got a bit of cover in, in the pandemic doing this of massively reorganising behind the scenes the Labour Party, getting it back into shape in the way that he wanted uh, and sort of building up its reserves and starting to develop longer term the policy. Then they decided to be more attacking of the Conservative Party once the pandemic kind of crisis was passing. Uh, And now they are seeming to go into his third 
phase, which is this is our offer to the British public. And I think we will start to see more detailed policy coming from them off the back of this. Which is a perfectly sensible and clear-headed approach, arguably. But when you look at, um, I think it's the stories in The the Guardian, it's Pippa Kruro who's broken the story about what these five national missions are going to be. Dare I say it, Sakir Starmer's pledges are way down the most viewed sidebar. It's being trumped by Pentagon releases selfie of US pilot flying above Chinese spy balloon. We should, in theory, having had 13 years now of Tory government and, 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 and the messes that have ensued, we should be champing at the bit for this. Well, I mean, just coming in the studio here, he is doing a sort of breakfast media round live on the sofa on breakfast. Uh, he, the speech will be televised. I think he'll do a lot of regional media later on. But I think part of the thing is Labour has a 20-point lead in the polls. It's not like it's sort of neck and neck. It's in the situation that I think Tony Blair described when he did... Um, when he did Desert Island Discs in 1996, which is, it's like carrying a Ming vase over an incredibly slippy floor. You, when you see those poll numbers, you know, you feel the weight of expectation and you just don't want to mess it up in the end. So I think there is partially that, you know, I think a lot of people would be incredibly surprised if there wasn't anything but, you know, unless something drastic happens in the next 12 months, if there wasn't a, a, a Labour Party with a significant majority uh, in in next year coming in. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I think people want more from Labour. I think they don't want the extremes of Corbynism. But I think particularly, you know, if you talk to people in this country, particularly, you know, I think if, if they pledge things like renationalizing the railway network they want big things that i think a lot of people actually a couple of years ago would have still found contentious but would get on board with now fixing the railways in particular because of that's keeping people working from home people just not coming back in city centers because the prices are so bad and the service is so bad but also child care in this country as well we've had a collapse in the number of nurseries uh, and nursery care is skyrocketing it's causing people to want to again stay at home it's bringing grandparents much more into the sort of being a part of the kind of coverage scheme for looking after kids uh, and it's also you know putting pressure on on people to can you know just stop having families i know lots <laughs> of couples who've said you know we wanted three or four but they get to two and they're like that's it nursery's a nightmare there's more than one reason for that well yeah vincent mcavinney thank you so much for joining me on the globalist UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. In a little while, we'll be hearing from the actor Vincent Cassel. But first, a global statistics roundup now with Professor James Murray Parks, who's director of Tentacle, a brilliantly named data analytics group based in New South Wales in Australia. Good afternoon, James. Yes. Hello. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Um, let's have a look at the statistics. Um, sugar and gold um, have hit their highest point since April 2022. Why is that then? Yeah, that's right. Well, um, sugar obviously is uh, is is skyrocketing, obviously due to uh, these uh, weather no- weather anomalies that are uh, hitting hitting countries like Brazil and uh, all through Europe and India. Um, so farmers are obviously struggling to keep up the yields and supply the markets. So it's obviously uh, you know since. Probably mid mid January, the prices have just been on a very very steady climb, and uh, they've continued to do so right into uh, right into where we are now. 
Um, gold, on the other hand, um, is uh, is starting to uh, starting to nosedive, and that's uh, that that's largely uh, due to um, obviously the the rising interest rates in many countries, and now making other investments more attractive. So, uh, two two uh, two commodities that have been on the rise in the last uh, over the last six months, um, uh, one still going up, and uh, and one is certainly uh, in gold is certainly coming down. There's that issue, isn't there, of the per- perennial reliability of commodities such as gold and sugar can we still rely on that uh yeah well i mean sugar is such an important important uh important ingredient in so many things not only food stuffs but it's used for so many other things in materials manufacturing and so forth so yes it's uh it's it's always going to be a prime candidate um gold is something that uh has has, has obviously um you know we've used to measure measure wealth and measure uh, asset worth uh, again since god was a boy so um or a girl um and uh yeah so you know the, these two are very uh are very very good commodities to look at. Um, Let's move on to another story about consensus forecasts and individual forecasts. Um, Tell us what's happening with uh, these, please, James. Sure. Well, basically, the power of consensus is is you know quite relevant to what we just discussed with the uh, with the two commodities. Um, uh, in 2020, for example, um, the M4 uh, forecasting competition, which is a, um, a competition uh, started by uh, Macrodacus, um, and uh, it compared basically the performances of 61 forecasting methods across 100,000 time series. And nine of nine of uh, the 10 best ranked methods combined uh, multiple forecasts methods um, as opposed to relying uh, on one single method. Um, so the accuracy of this approach uh, has been found to outperform industry benchmark industry benchmarks by about uh, 10%. Um, and the reason for this in lay terms is basically uh, instead of just having you know your your model forecast when you're going to make a decision on whether to buy or sell a commodity or buy or sell a, a carbon or whatever it is you want to trade um you you now have uh, what we refer to as ensembles where you have uh, basically groups of different models basically covering each other's weaknesses and, and supporting each other's strengths. Um, so we've referred to these as ensemble models. Um, and so this has been the, the breakthrough that many of us in this this space have have, uh, have has enabled us to actually be become a hell of a lot more accurate than the uh, than, than the industry benchmark. Hence our our predictions that uh, tentacle are so accurate. Um, finally, let's uh, talk about well, a moment ago, we had uh, our guest David Badanis in the studio talking about the enormous um, Japanese ball that's washed up on a, on the coast of a fishing village and everybody was absolutely agog and worried that it was a UFO until as David pointed out um, it had human sized handles. Um, we're talking about UFO reports again now I'm assumed that UFO reports are, are, are being studied absolutely intensely by statisticians am I right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We we do it for a bit of fun because a lot of the work that we do is so serious. So we do watch the UFO reports. Um, just want to note that eighty nine percent of all UFO reports uh, are generally, uh, or from the sources we use, are coming out of the USA. Uh, we don't tend to have many UFO re- uh, reported sightings around the rest of the world, but uh, in in the USA, aliens tend to want to watch the USA. Um, <laughs> quite an interesting thing. Um, Another interesting point on on UFOs uh, is um, uh, obviously in uh, 2020 we saw uh, we saw reports uh, increase by about 250 percent compared to the previous year. 
Um, and this was largely, uh, uh, you know, due to Starlink um, began to, uh, you know, deploying um, a hell of a lot of satellites uh, uh, in, in, in late uh, 2019. Um, so, yeah, th there's a lot of time being wasted with people calling up and, and reporting UFOs and so forth when they're really just satellites. So, um, yes, interesting. Professor James Murray Perks, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're the globalist. <laughs> Finally, after spending the last few minutes talking about satellites and UFOs, let's turn to the world of espionage and conspiracy. There are some of the themes explored in a new political action thriller called Liaison, which is a six-part series premiering on Apple TV Plus tomorrow. It stars Vincent Cassel and Ava Green, who play former lovers reunited to fight a dangerous cyber threat. And according to the creators of the show, their complicated bond is a metaphor for the post-Brexit relationship between France and the United Kingdom. On Monocle's Laura Kramer caught up with Vincent to talk about the show, doing his own stunts and filming in Paris, Brussels and across the United Kingdom. Laura began by asking Vincent what it's like to speak four languages in a series. To speak different languages is, well, you know, when you're a French actor, you definitely have to learn at least English. Otherwise, you're going to stay where you are. And uh, I've always been attracted to, you know, traveling around the world, learning languages. This is something that, uh, from my point of view, you have to do. How many Americans or uh, even Brits that I've met in Paris and they've been here for like 15 years and they still don't speak French? I don't get it. How do you do that? It's something I just can't relate to. You know, you need to, to understand the culture, to understand how things work in a country. You need to get into it. And to get into it, you have to pick up, you know, the slang, literally. You got to film in very many different countries. How does a production change? How does the mood of it change every time you move location, starting over with a new production uh, and crew? Well, listen, you know what? As an actor, the, the size of the production doesn't really matter. You have to relax and, uh, you know, and just take care of your business. Because if you start to get involved with the production problems, it's become a hassle and you cannot be focused on what you have to do. So I would say a big movie that moves from one location to the other... This is not my problem. What I do is that I stay in my trailer and my trailer follows me. <laughs> well, you know what? You're so impressive in this. All the action sequences were really cool. How much of that was that your own doing and how was the training for it? Listen, you know, I've been doing this kind of stuff for a while now, so I never really stopped training, you know, and, uh, you know, being an old actress like me, you've been, I, I learned to do a lot of different stuff from horseback riding to sword fighting, kung fu, uh, whatever, you know, so you, it's like you have, a, you, have a, you have a baggage of things. So the training wasn't really a problem. What I wanted to do in this one in particular is that I didn't want it to be like the stereotype spy thing where, you know, they fight forever and so what I did is like I took care of the choreography of my own, uh, my own fights. I did all my stunts because, I mean, let's face it, it's not, I don't have to jump from a plane or whatever. And, uh, but I managed to cut everything and to make everything maybe not as visual as we're, what we used to see on screen, but very effective, very dry, and to have this feeling of violence and effectiveness. Well, it's good because otherwise that gets boring. <laughs> Just want to. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I love that it's apparently a metaphor as post-Brexit political systems with the lovers. What attracted you to the script? Because it's such a cool idea that. Well, first of all, the opportunity to be able to create a French character for a worldwide audience is definitely something that attracted me. Let's face it. 
then the way it was written, you know, it was precise. It was never, it was never uh, cheesy or, or campy. You know, it was it was pretty subtle, in a I would say in a European way. And uh, and then you know the fact that Evergreen was doing the part, you know, for me was definitely uh, one of the main reasons why I wanted to be involved with it. That was Vincent Cassel talking to Monocle's Laura Kramer. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to Emma Sell, the producer, and Laura Kramer, our researchers Lillian Fawcett and Andrei Nikolai Parminchian. Our studio manager was Adam Heaton with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>